when I call your name, please say present. <laughs> kidding. First Kings chapter 8, bringing up the Ark of Yahweh. The parallel account is in Second Chronicles 6, well, 5 and 6. Looking at verse 1, now Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of their of the tribes, the chief fathers, the children of Israel, to King Solomon in Jerusalem, that they might bring up the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh from the city of David, which is Zion. Well, he's invited all of the bigwigs, we would say, for the dedication festivities, that they might bring up the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh. Finally, it has been over 400 years without a home. Uh, It was, of course, designed initially to be portable for the priests to uh, carry on their shoulders, but now it is going to be stationary. It is not supposed to move again. It will, of course, but not under ideal conditions. Its uh, holiness, though, was not temporary. Uh, It was wherever... It was God's presence was supposed to be if the Jews would just follow him. And I think one of the great lessons we get out of that, and that's what these are, things are in here for, is culture does not antique, uh, put out of date, antiquate God's commandments. Uh, God's word is his word, and it's not going to change unless he gives an update. And the, which the New Testament does for us. The New Testament looks at the Old Testament and says, this remains and this has been completed. And this means that. And, and we, we learn that way. And, but it's a closed canon. It's not changing anymore. There are no more apostles to come along and revise the teachings of God's word. If you were to tell Uzzah, who reached out his hand to steady the ark when the oxen stumbled. He thought he was doing the right thing when he was struck dead. You'd say, well, you know, don't worry about touching it because the culture has changed since the days of Moses. And you can go ahead and touch the ark now and nothing will happen to you. The Philistines could look inside of it. Uh, They could get away with uh, breaking God's word ritual and ordinances like that, because they were in deeper trouble. And that's the truth to this day. You have somebody who, you know, is struggling with some sin, but does not have salvation. And you can tell them right out, your biggest problem is not that maybe, you know, maybe you have a short temper or you're, you're a thief or something. That's a problem. But the greater problem is you're going to hell because of it. And God's word, again, does not ask any culture in history, you know, what do you think we should do? God uh, makes this declaration. Numbers chapter 4. And when Aaron and his sons had finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, when the camp is set to go, then the sons of Kohath shall come and carry them. But they shall not touch any holy thing lest they die. These are the things in the tabernacle of meeting which the sons of Kohath are to carry, and it goes on to itemize them. So the Levites, who were assistants to the priests, uh, they had to wait for the priest to cover up these articles, and they, they would go move them, but they, they had to follow the protocol. 
And that's why we men- I mentioned Uzzah, who was a Levite, Second Samuel 6, and when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. Then the anger of Yahweh was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him there for his error, and he died there by the ark of God. It does not mean he went to hell. It just means God exercised uh, his judgment on him in front of everybody to make a very important point. And so this is the same Ark of the Covenant. This Ark of the Covenant that Solomon is bringing into the temple is the identical Ark that was under the leadership of Moses. It says, from the city of David, which is Zion. Zion was that fortress hilltop there by Mount Moriah. Uh, it, its name has evolved Initially, it was this hilltop. It became the city of David. It then referred to Jerusalem in general. And now it uh, is used to refer to Israel uh, in general. So, But at this point, it is the city of David, which was uh, in close, close proximity to the thrashing floor of Ornan. And uh, again, Zion is used figuratively of Israel. Uh, you, we find this in... Isaiah 60, for example, where uh, these references are made. And to this day, the Jews referring to Zion have multiple meanings. Verse 2, Therefore all the men of Israel assembled with King Solomon at the feast in the month of Ethanem, which is the seventh month. Well, home worship was not to be a substitute for public worship, and that's the idea behind the temple. You're free to worship home, of course, uh, anywhere you want. And, and Well, for the Jew, they could worship, but they could not carry out the rituals in just any old place they wanted to once the temple was up. But the temple now is uh, it's, it's the national uh, official site of worship where the sacrifices and the offerings will be taking place. It says at the feast in the month of Ethanim, which is the seventh month, middle October, middle September to October. It's kind of, it's cooler. Solomon, he finished the temple um, in the eighth month of the previous year. This now tells us that uh, these events here, this celebration that's about to take place and bringing up the ark is 11 months later. So for 11 months, the temple structure was complete but uh, there was no service going on. Now, during that time, I'm sure there was a punch list. And what we, re- you know, what we read about the detail of the temple, it, it probably took some time to, you know, you couldn't just get, a, get the parts right away. Everything had to be fabricated off-site. Uh, we're going to get to a part where Solomon's going to speak from a platform that's made out of bronze. And I'm sure they were making that platform uh, during that 11-month period. They were making preparation for this. They had more animal animals than they could number uh, to sacrifice uh, during this uh, celebration. So it stood complete, and of course that means he scheduled, they scheduled this dedication of the temple to coincide with the Feast of Booths and uh, which was, in this one, a jubilee year, so it was like a double holiday season. Um, None of it was by mistake. Uh, 
Now, that Feast of Booths reminded the Jews that they were slaves in Egypt, that they were delivered out of Egypt, and that they wandered in the wilderness, living in tents. And to this day, the Jews celebrate this, and they put up little booths. If they have a terrace, and you go into a neighborhood where the Jews are, are celebrating this, you'll see little little lean-tos on their terrace, little, you know, tents-like, and it's commemorating uh, this very holiday. Um, Jerusalem would be crowded with pilgrims, as, as in the day of Pentecost, when they were all coming, the men were ma- mandated to attend the Feast of Pentecost in Jerusalem. Well, they would, they would be the, the pilgrims, men and women, coming, converging on Jerusalem, and so the timing of it was intentional. And so just to review uh, about the ark coming to the temple, and the, there was that 11-month wait. It gave them time to prepare and make sure everything was in place. They wanted it to coincide with also the Day of Atonement, which preceded the Feast of Booths, the Jubilee, the ark moving in, and the Tabernacle of Moses. So the ark had been separated for decades from the rest of the tabernacle of Moses, the bronze altar, the golden altar, the, the tent, all those things, the showbread uh, table, the lampstand, the utensils, all that was separate from the ark. And now uh, Solomon's going to bring all of it back and still use some of, well, most of it will be stored. The only piece of furniture that will be used from Moses' temple is the Ark of the Covenant. Everything else has been replaced, but he's going to bring it in those extra rooms that uh, he built into the temple. Precincts around the temple um, would be where they would store it. Verse 3. So all the elders came. It gets exciting. I, I don't promise, but I think it will. So all the elders of Israel came, and the priests took up the Ark. As I mentioned, this was the ark that Moses oversaw its fabrication, that Joshua uh, brought, when he brought the people into the promised land, it was the priests who carried this very ark into the Jordan River, and the river rolled back, and the people crossed over on dry ground as the priests stood there with the ark. They couldn't see the ark. It was covered, but they knew it was there, Uh, and nobody would dare peek under the... (laughs) The, and these poles, incidentally, evidently the poles to, cu- to carry the ark, they had rings on the side of the ark, and they'd slip these poles in so they wouldn't touch it, and the priest would uh, carry it on their shoulders. This is about 30 feet long. Uh, we, we'll get to that in a little bit. Uh, you say, that doesn't sound right. Well, you can disagree with the verse. I don't remember what exact verse it's in, but we'll, we'll come to it um, if you like. But I don't have a problem with it. It's, um, it actually works out well for the priests. More of them can help carry it. Well, <clears throat> Deuteronomy 31.9, the priests, the sons of Levi, who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. They are the ones responsible for uh, carrying the Ark. And um, it, uh, as I mentioned, the only piece of original furniture going into God's structure, this building. Uh, Nothing could replace the throne of God in the law, which is the idea. Nothing replaces. You can get other lampstands and tables and other things 
But the mercy seat of God is exclusive. And I, I think that's one of the lessons that I get out of it. Just think of this. All the people involved in making the original ark, and the men and women, because the women contributed also, they kept the homes of the men who worked, uh, the artisans who worked on and fashioned the ark, for example. This was something that all the people had something to do with in that sense. Uh, all of them, every single one of them, were born slaves, the adults. They were born slaves. Every sinner ever forgiven, every sinner who has received mercy of God is born a slave to sin. Every child of Adam is born a slave to sin. And yet, there's mercy from God for just those kind of people. And I, I think that it's an interesting thing. Of, again, of all of the articles, the furniture that was retained, that was to sit forever, was the Ark of the Covenant. And it was called uh, the Ark, the chest. The chest itself was one piece. And that's where the rod of Aaron, the manna, and the tablets of the word were stored. And then uh, the lid was called the mercy seat with the cherubim facing in, overlaid in gold. It was, must have been very beautiful, but it was very significant. And that's what's going to come out of this chapter. Of course, we can't get the whole chapter this evening. There's 66 verses. If you'd like to stay to midnight... Uh, we can give it a shot, but we'll break it up at least into two parts. Verse 4, Then they brought to the ark of, the, of Yahweh the tabernacle of meeting and all the holy furnishings that were in the tabernacle. The priest and the Levites brought them up. So there is the permanent link now between the tabernacle of Moses and the temple of Solomon, the ark of the covenant. Then they brought up the ark of Yahweh, the tabernacle of meeting. That's Moses' tent and all of the things that went with it. Of course, the ark being the only one preserved, as I've said a few times already. Just looking at the ark of the covenant, for a long time it remained in Gilgal, the first camp of the Jews once they crossed into the promised land, where Joshua said, God's rolled away the shame. We're not the people who were delivered out of Egypt but couldn't be delivered into the promised land. Now we're in the promised land. And uh, Gilgal was their first base. The temple was there with the ark. And then the, it moved to Shiloh. And then Mizpah. Uh, at some point, the Jews decided, well, at the point when Eli was the judge over Israel before Samuel, they went to war, the Jews did, with the Philistines. And they decided to take the Ark of the Covenant with them into battle. Well, they lost. And the Philistines got hold of the Ark. God persuaded the, the, the Philistines to bring the Ark back. And they did. Uh, then it was taken to Kirjath-Jerim, a Levite city, a priestly city. And for 20 years, that's where the Ark of the Covenant stayed. Separated from the other parts of Moses' tabernacle. Then, of course, David comes along and he wants to bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. Uzzah gets struck dead. The, the journey stops and the Ark goes to the house of Obed-Edom and it stays there for a while. 
Then David goes back and he brings the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. Finally, it is brought into the temple by Solomon, reunited again with Moses' uh, articles of the tabernacle. And there the glory of Yahweh will fill the house as evidence of his grace and his approval. He will sanctify this. Verse 5, also King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who were assembled with him were with him before the ark, sacrificing sheep and oxen that could not be counted or numbered for multitude. Now with all these animals around in a sandal-clad world, Street sweepers would have been a must. <laughs> I mean, they're just, I mean, animals, <clears throat> they're just not as cute as cartoon animals to me. <laughs> and I, I better not talk about animals because people can get quite unchristian <laughs> about animals. Uh, I just, a warning don't have more love for pets than lost souls. Uh, that's the devil messing with your head redirecting love. I know it's easier to love a pet than a lot of people. But you have to fight it. I mean, Christ died, you know, for for sinners. And um, so we'll just leave it at that. (laughs) Please, no hate mail this time. Uh, Anyway, animal blood sacrifices. uh, There's so much butchering, slaughtering and butchering going on that they, they couldn't even count it. It had to be just quite a scene. A lot of meat would come out of this. And the Temple Mount was a palace on the inside, in the temple itself, but a slaughterhouse on the outside. And sin has done this. And this is just, life is like that. There are these palace-type things about life that make us want to cling to life, but then there's the butchering, too. There's the horrible things about life. That we say, man, I can't wait to get out of here. I didn't push my timer. Okay, now we begin. So, uh, I, I think the, the contrast and the allegory and the emblem of, of these Old Testament events are, are very helpful. Because you, you look at them and you say they fit so well together in so many areas of life. They're not necessarily expressing doctrine directly, but they are telling us about life in a cursed world under a sovereign God who has more plans for us, for those who come to him. That this is not everything. That there is life beyond this life. And to get there, uh, the inspiration is to do the best we can for this sovereign God who is as loving as he is sovereign. Uh, uh, So, it's not wasted. I I don't think it's wasted. Little little things like that. Again, if you you come to the temple, your first contact with the Jewish temple would have been your sense of smell. If they were putting the burnt sacrifices on the altar, you would smell it before you got there. Or you'd probably see the smoke first. That would probably be the first thing from a distance. And then the smells... And then the sight. And it all meant something then, and it means something now. But what has happened is the cross of Christ has eclipsed it all. We have the cross of Christ. We have the Son of God innocently slain like a lamb to the slaughter for me, personally. 
and uh, all of these things in the Jewish religion of the Hebrews was an anticipation, in anticipation of the cross of Christ and his resurrection. Verse, because there's no, I mean, so you just have a slaughter, but there has to be something else. Else is just butchering. And the, the something else is the forgiveness. And thus the bronze. The bronze speaks of judgment and repentance. Because if there was only judgment, there'd be no altar. You'd just be judged. But the fact that there is an altar means that there is a place to find propitiation for my sin. Forgiveness. Uh, there's a way to approach God, to have my sin dealt with. Verse 6, the priest brought in the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh to its place, into the inner sanctuary of the temple, to the most holy place under the wings of the cherubim. Now, the king is the religious leader at this time, not of ritual. There are things he cannot do. He most definitely cannot offer incense on the golden altar, which we'll get one of the kings tried to do it, and went bad for him, and stayed bad for him. But And he was a good king, and there was a lot of lessons in that too. But uh, here, uh, the, the king is the religious leader. Now, he is subject to a dispatched prophet of God, Jehu, the first king of the northern kingdom, is appointed by God. And when he began to sin, God dispatched an unnamed prophet to deal with him. And de deal with him he did. So it, it's not, um, it, it is how God set it up. And we'll, we'll touch on it a little bit more. Verse 7, for the cherubim spread their two wings over the place of the ark, and the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its poles. Exodus 25 Verse 15, the poles shall be in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. Well, they're going to stay in. He brings the ark into this temple, and the poles will stay in, and they will be visible, uh, sort of poking out of the curtain. Because to, to go from the holy place to the holiest place where the ark sat, there was a curtain, but there were also doors. Presumably, the doors remained open. Because the, uh, these poles would stick out. In verse 8, the poles extended so that the ends of the poles could be seen from the holy place in front of the inner sanctuary. But they could not be seen from outside, verse 8. And they are there to this day. Well, the suggestion, the ark again is the presence of God. That's what it symbolizes. That God is with them. Which is why they took it to battle, but they reduced it to a rabbit's foot. They weren't obeying God at that point. They were just using the emblem of God. <clears throat> and uh, here, this, that the poles suggest the ark is right here. That this, uh, the presence of God cannot be contained by this holy place. He's bigger than this. Uh, the rabbis said that the poles were visible bumps behind the veil. Just You could just see their imprint. I don't know how they would have got to see that. <laughs> Maybe a priest came out and told them, yeah, you know, let me draw you a picture. Uh, well, can I see? You can go see. You just won't come back to tell anybody. Now, the ark is just about three foot, a little, almost four foot wide, about two foot high. This holy place in the temple is 30 foot square. So you just do the math. It went, they, they placed it, the cherubim were in the center of the room. They were huge, 15 foot tall, 15 foot wide, with their wings spread out, these cherubim. 
So if, if, it, if the ark is in the middle of the room and these poles are sticking out of one end, well, you've got to say, well, the other side is a wall, so they probably slid them back just a little bit. How long were these poles? Let's take a pole. Uh, so uh, they were made of acacia wood, and I guess that's some pretty tough stuff. Uh, I wonder how thick, you know, you have so many questions it just creates. And you look at artistic renderings, you say, well, that's not, doesn't match. The poles are too small. Uh, this thing could hold, you know, seven or eight guys on each end, uh, to, to each single pole, one side, I guess. We should um, reconstruct this. Anybody got a 30-foot poles? Anyway, uh, that's, that's that on that. And, and they are there to this day. So that means this section was recorded about 380 years before this whole temple is going to be destroyed. It's got about, the clock is ticking. And God is bigger than any temple. So the one who compiled this section, it, he's long dead by the time the other chapters, latter chapters come in in chapter 25 of Second Kings, we have the, the story of the temple being um, destroyed. Uh, so you have multiple contributors to the book of Kings because who could live through all the generations? Verse 9. <clears throat> Nothing was in the ark except the two tablets of stone which Moses put there at Horeb. Then Yahweh made a covenant with the children of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. So not only is this the very ark that Mo Moses could see, saw the ark, of course, he, he saw it in vision, in, in reality. But the, the stones, nothing was in the ark except the two tablets of stone, which Moses put there in, at Horeb. You know, I guess the closest thing we might have is, you know, George Washington actually wrote with this pen, you know, his quill or something. Um, but this is so much greater than that. The very stones that Moses had are still with them. And they were taken to God blank, nothing on them, the second set. And God returned the stones to man full of his will. The originals were God cut and God engraved. So let's pick it up back at Exodus 31. <clears throat> and when he had made an end of speaking with him on Mount Sinai, he gave Moses two tablets of the testimony Tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Well, these are still written with the finger of God. Exodus thirty-two sixteen. Now the tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. Now duplicates had to be made, of course, because Moses comes down with this these stones engraved by God. And now don't get Charlton Heston in your head, some of you. Um, and the people are in debauchery. They're dancing, they're sinning, they've got their idol out, and Moses comes infuriated, and he throws these stones down and breaks them. Well, Moses had a temper problem, and that's clear in the Scripture, that he had issues with his temp temper. Well, uh, verse 34, after that, of Exodus 34, pardon me, Exodus 34, verse 1, Then Yahweh said to Moses, Cut two tablets of stone like the first ones. <laughs> now Moses got to cut the stones. Last time God provided them. And 
I will write on these tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. <laughs> you got to love that. You got to love that God told Moses that, and Moses said, I better write that down. Uh, you know, I meant to sweep that one under the rug. And how much precedence did that lay out before us? Because we're going to get Jonah saying, let me tell you what I did. And then we get Elijah, the great prophet of God, saying, I'm the only one. And then in chapter 18 of, of 1 Kings, then you get to chapter 19, he's still saying it. I'm the only one. This was something he was, was bitter about. I'm the faithful one. Everybody else is running from God. And then, of course, God says, by the way, you're not the only one. And only Elijah could have known this. So that's how we know it. Elijah says, I better write this down. And he is not self-deprecating. It's just the facts. God put me in my place, and you need to know this. So here's Moses, and then Exodus 34. So he was with Yahweh 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. And he, that's God, wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Now it was so, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, that the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand. When he came down from the mountain, these are those two tablets from that second episode. That began in verse 1 of 34, Exodus 34. Go get some stones. And 34 tells us that he's up there 40 days with God, and they are uh, re-issued. So the presence of God accompanies the Word of God. I I don't know of an exception to that, because the Word of God is the will of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He became flesh and dwelt. Not only the serious stuff, from God's perspective, we try not to have any event without the Word of God. I mean, if we're going to have music, we're going to have the Word of God. If we're going to have a, a baby dedication, the Word of God's going to be there uh, for everything we do because it, they're inseparable, the presence of God with the Word of God. And that's one of the lessons that's coming from this. Here you have the chest with the mercy seat, and the only thing in it is God's Word. And thus the nation was to continue steadfastly in the doctrine of God as handed to the people through the hands of Moses. Originally in the ark, as I mentioned, the manna, the rod, and the tablets, we get that officially. It's, it's, it's in, uh, in, in Numbers, um, Exodus 16 tells us about the manna being brought before the the Ark of the Testimony, and then Numbers 17 tells us about the rod, and then Exodus 40 tells us about the tablets, all of these being brought to the Ark. Well, Hebrews chapter 9 sums it all up for us. The Ark of the Covenant overlaid on on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Well, the manna is, of course, the bread given from God to men, the bread of life. Jesus is the bread of life, of course. God is the sustainer of life. He is the provider. Exodus 16.32 is where the manna and the ark is recorded. The rod, that was a a stick. It's just a stick, you know, probably a six-foot staff that was dead and, and shaved down and used for walking. Well, God breathed life into that, and it... It it budded almonds, ripe almonds, and uh, it was the authority given from God to his spiritual leader 
against rebels. It was uh, Korah and his band, and there were others. that they, Who do you think you are, Moses, you and your brother, Aaron, taking all this authority? Well, we're not people of God, too. You get this still in Christianity. Or oh, he's my savior, too, kind of an attitude. Like, well, then, here's the keys to my car. Uh, ha I don't own a car. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> uh, so they rebelled, and, of course, God dealt with them. And these two items were included in the ark. And God was saying, I provide, and I oversee my church. I rule over my church, and I use men to do it. And then the tablets, the word given from God to men, the enduring item of the three, because the other two are captured in this one. Obey the word of God. Now, verse 10. And it came to pass when the priests came out of the holy place that, they, that the cloud filled the house of Yahweh. Verse 11, so that the priests could not continue ministering because of the cloud, for the glory of Yahweh filled the house of the Lord. Well, bringing up the Ark of the Covenant into the house of God made all the difference. Until that presence of God came there, it was just a building, just a structure. The presence of God is the game changer, we, we would say in today's vernacular. God filled the house with Yahweh, his presence with himself. The house of God, the temple of God, is to be filled with his presence. That is the idea. Is there a believer that would protest this? Ephesians 5.18, do not be drunk with wine, in which is overindulgence, but be filled with the Spirit. That's the same idea. There's nothing lost in this. Ephesians 3.19, to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge. That goes back to that pet statement I made. It's okay to love pets. It's just not acceptable to love, have a heart more for animals than it is for lost souls. And this is the love of Christ which passes knowledge. We accept it by faith. He continues in 319 of Ephesians, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Although we would call that overflowing with the Spirit. Now, in chapter Five of Second Chronicles. We have more information about what's happening at this event right now. The priest, they place the Ark of the Covenant in the holy place and they withdraw to come out and join the, the, the sacrifices and the music. And the Levites are there and they've got their instruments and they're singing songs to the Lord. And this is what we know they were singing because we're told in Second Chronicles 5.13. To God they were singing, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. And then Christ, or the Spirit of God, of course, the, the, the cloud, which is symbolic presence of God, overwhelms everybody. So everything has to stop. It's so intense. He does this twice at this one occasion. At the bringing in of the ark and at the end of Solomon's prayer, God does this. But this first one, as the priests exited the holy place and Levites were singing at the start of worship and song, before, right before Solomon was supposed to preach, the song and then he would preach. We, got, we follow that pattern. That God fills the place so that the priests could not minister, could not engage in what they were supposed to do in preparation for these sacrifices. And then 2 Chronicles 7, verses 1 through 3 tells us as Solomon finished praying, again the cloud came and overwhelmed them. 
God would say, I'm very into this. <laughs> I am totally into this. This is a holy God of the universe. This, well, you know, if I, if I overdo it, I hurt you, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to downsize it for you. As Christ, when Christ came in a manger, I mean, he could have come in all of his glory, and that would have been it. So God led the nation in the wilderness with the same cloud, the Shekinah, Numbers 9. And here, it's sort of like he's assuming the pulpit. He's taking center place in his house. This is a theophany. He's ordaining and consecrating Israel's first temple service. This should have been the ultimate motivator or inspiration. He is officially now residing at the temple. Ritual and celebration had to bow to the presence of God. All of every, you know, that just, what mattered was his presence. Same thing happened with Moses in Exodus chapter 40. Moses could not enter the holy place of the tabernacle when the cloud descended. It was so overwhelming. We, we want these experiences, but we're in the age of faith. And we, we, we go, the just shall live by faith. Once said in the Old Testament, thrice repeated in the New, for emphasis. Upheld and expected, God expects us to know these things. That I don't have to have a cloud of glory descend for me to have my faith validated. I, I know the spirit of the living God in my heart, which matches his word. Verse 12, then Solomon spoke. Is the sermon part. The Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh said he would dwell in the dark cloud. So he takes up as his theme the experience that they were all sharing. The dark cloud. It wasn't in his notes. And he begins his prayer facing the temple. He's talking the people behind him. He's facing the temple. We know that from verse 14 when he turns around and addresses the people. He is standing on this bronze platform, according to 2 Chronicles 6, verse 13, because there's that super abundance. They had so much bronze left over. What are they doing? How about we make a platform? It's, it's four and a half feet high and seven feet square. It's about twice as high as the platform I'm, I'm standing on now. This bronze, as I mentioned, was the emblem of judgment. The altar was made of bronze. Bronze is resistant to heat, more so than other metals. Uh, if you cut with an acetylene torch, you know the torch tips are, are, are not made of uh, iron, but they're alloys, of course, now, but they're bronze, copper kind of thing. And here, the dark cloud. Well, he's connecting, Solomon is, the events that they're sharing with the experiences at, at Mount Sinai. Exodus 19.9, Yahweh said to Moses, Behold, I come to you in the thick cloud. Now, Why? That my people may hear when I speak with you. The implication being that there, God is mysterious. There are mysterious things surrounding God. And as a deterrent to molded images. I mean, how, I mean if you know, this was something that was an infestation of idolatry in uh, the area of, in the world. And God is totally against idol. I mean, he's so big on it in the Old Testament. You wonder how the Roman Catholic Church loses this. 
They, they just kind of write a pal, okay, I'll give you a uh, pass. Uh, you know, uh, dear Bob, so-and-so is excused from bowing down to statues because we don't call them statues. Uh, it's, the same, it's idolatry. It's nothing short of idolatry. Putting a little figurine, you know, that St. Christopher or somebody on my dashboard is not going to save you. Why do you need Christ dying if that's all it takes? Just give me a box of those things. Uh, anyway, the emphasis at Sinai was on hearing God, not seeing him. That's why he's going, I want you to, you know, well, again, Exodus, behold, I come in the thick cloud that my people may hear what I speak to with you. And today God is saying the same thing. Peter, David, heed the word of God. Do you, are, you, are we listening to what the scripture says? Because we have no other means of knowing the will of God except through his word. And God did not want the Jewish people <clears throat> to be tempted to make images of their God and then go worship them, because that's what they surely would have done. They did it anyway. But imagine if God showed up in a, you know, a tuxedo. There would have been little statues of somebody in a tuxedo. <clears throat> Psalm 97, verse 2. Clouds and darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. So there are the mysteries with God, and to our benefit, when we get to heaven, of course, Paul talks about God is going to be sharing so many things with us, uh, resolving so many mysteries, it's going to be uh, just, uh, what a thrill. Uh, I mean, what are they doing in heaven right now? Shuffleboard. I mean, do they wear helmets when they ride horses? Um, anyway, <laughs> no, there's no ocean in heaven. <laughs> All right, back to this. I mean, OSHA's done some good things. Let's not, just, I mean, they just get carried away sometimes. And if you're a contractor, a construction contractor, you, you probably don't like hearing that. Verse 13, I have surely built you an exalted house and a place for you to dwell in forever. Well, Solomon delights that this is finished. Not like, man, I, you know, construction. Boy, I thought it would never end. Uh, that's not what he's saying. He said, this is it. This is the quest that we had before us, and it is satisfied. It feels so good. Exodus 40, verse 33. So Moses finished the work concerning the tabernacle. And now Solomon is saying that. Of course it was glorious, because it was God who inspired David to draw it up. So this, you know, it was glorious among men. Of course, Solomon knew that God was infinitely greater. Even before they started Second Chronicles 2, in sending to Hiram for materials, he says, Who am I then that I should build him a temple except to burn sacrifice before him? And it's just a place where we will follow the ritual and rite given to us that are very emblematic. But who am I? And then verse 27 of, of this chapter in 1 Kings. But will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, the heaven and heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple which I have built. <clears throat> Again, that's what the poles kind of pushing out of the holy place was saying. You can't contain God to a space. You'll break out of it. Paul, when he's ministering, Remember, he's the Jewish man that brought the Gentiles in. There were proselytes, there were, Jew, there were Gentiles who became Jews, who became Christians. They were really 
Judaized. There were no Gentiles coming to God as Gentiles until Peter gets with Cornelius. But then they kind of stall. Then Paul comes along and he just rips the lid off the thing. So much so, everybody's, oy vey, what are we going to do? We can't stop Paul. He said, Don't, no, no more Sabbath day, no more circumcision. What is wrong with him? Paul said, I didn't yield for a moment to those guys. Anyway, Acts chapter 17, God, who made the world and everything in it. He's preaching to, to Gentiles who are not yet saved. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Well, because all of the Gentiles were going around, look how beautiful the temple of Diana is. Isn't it marvelous? I'm going to colonnade. And Paul was saying, that's nothing. And that really caused some of them to say, thank you. Because I was thinking that I didn't know how to get out of the box. And others said, let's kill him. Verse 14, then the king turned around and blessed the whole assembly of Israel while all the assembly of Israel was standing. So that's how we know where he was facing. Verse 15, and he said, blessed be Yahweh, God of Israel, who spoke with his mouth to my father and with his hand has fulfilled its saying. Now, before we get to that, when he says he's blessing the Lord, it says praise with, with appreciation, with gratitude. God, you are worthy, and I'm really glad you are worthy. I'm, it's, it's just this outpouring of emotion. But he says God spoke to David with his mouth. We'll get back to David in a little bit. Verse 16. <clears throat> Since the day that I brought my people, Israel, out of Egypt, this is what God was saying to David, and David, Solomon is re- repeating it. I have chosen no city from any tribe of Israel in which to build a house. My name might be there, but I chose David to be over my people Israel. Now, natural Israel chose Saul. But God says he chose David. This this is profound. This is why I meant that he's the religious leader, the king. It's a fact. God chose David as king, and David chose Jerusalem as his capital and the center of worship for the nation. God gave David this this privilege. There, is, there are those that you mention David and the first thing they think about, at least seems to be some people, is his sin. And they sort of think that that reduces David. That somehow David is not this profound figure in Scripture. He is way at the top among men. This text in this chapter repeatedly mentions him in verse 1, it is the city of David. Here in verse 16, God's choice is king. In verses 15 through 18, verse 20, verse 24 through 26, it is David's covenant with God. In verse 20, the Lord kept his promise with David to build the temple. And then in verse 66, at the end of all of the festivities, with the people rejoicing on the good things God had done for David. And David's dead at this point. And then, of course, we get to Ezekiel and David comes up again. So, this is a profound man of God. And it is, again, sad to think that there are those that see his sin instead of beyond the sin to his relationship with God. Because... If you just think of his sin, which we way down on the list, actually. Not at the bottom, but it should not be way up the top either. 
if you if you see it that way, then you're ignoring that Satan tried desperately to hurt David, to ruin him, to stop him, because of all the promises connected with he and Jesus Christ. But God didn't let it happen. And that makes that's attractive to me. Because I can look at David and say, man, if, if God can work around sinners and their sin, this is my God. Uh, the God that's just looking to clunk me on the head, I'm, I'd be terrified of. Maybe that's why the Roman Catholics worship those little statues, because their, their understanding of God is not very friendly. So they bring in all these substitutes, like Mary and Peter. You know, I get to heaven and Peter's at the gate. And if he's not going to be at the gate, Peter did not die for your sins. And he'd pop you upside your head if you suggested that to him. Mary would be next, popping you upside your head. How dare you pray to me? Could you imagine? If she were alive, she'd be rolling in her grave over such a thought. Verse 17. Now it was in the heart of my father David to build a temple for the name of Yahweh God of Israel. Again, David was the God-inspired man, and had not God done it this way, it likely would not have been done. This is profound. This is how God wanted it to happen, and there was no plan B. If there was, then David would have been disqualified. Verse 18, But Yahweh said to my father David, Whereas it was in your heart to build a temple for my name, you did well in that it was in your heart. I mean, you've got to love that, right? God says, look, there are things you really want to do that are right, but you, I'm not going to let you do them. But the fact that you just wanted to do it means a lot to me. Well, parents can relate with that. With the, you know, if you have... Anyway, verse 20. So Yahweh has fulfilled his word, <clears throat> which he spoke, and I have filled the position of my father David. And sit on the throne of Israel, as Yahweh promised. And I have built a temple for the name of Yahweh, God of Israel. Now remember, he's just getting started. We've got over 40 verses to go. So, uh, but this is how he, he begins. We'll end in verse 21. And there I have made a place for the ark, in which is the covenant of Yahweh, which he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. So this is, you know, the end of the ark part. He's, he's now going to get into the dedication of the temple. At least that's where the emphasis is going to be. But the ark coming into this temple, where did it start? What is the spark that ignited the keg? Second Samuel 7, David said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. And that started the whole thing. So now Solomon says, there, look again at verse 21, the first clause. There, I have made a place for the ark. It's not in curtains anymore. The quest is fulfilled. This is incredible stuff. I, I mean, we, you know, just in, incredible looking at it. And there's a whole heaven to back it up. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for these, this record. That we can look back with excitement and say, Wow, what, what can I do with this to your glory today? In spite of my setbacks. 
Well, you know the answer to that, Lord, and we look for it to, to unfold in our lives. May you get us all home safely tonight. We ask you in Jesus' name, amen.